you'd turn tonight to Acts chapter 22. Now, as you might expect, as the Apostle Paul, last time we learned that if you're going to do anything for the Lord, if you're going to be great at much of anything, there's a pretty good chance you're going to be misunderstood. And the Apostle Paul was radically misunderstood in his motivation, in his actions, those things that he undertook. And so as we pick up here in chapter 22, Paul's now going to explain himself. And tonight I would ask that you pay very, very close attention to how the Apostle Paul defends all that he has done and all that he has said as he has begun to share the gospel with unbelievers. As he has been used of the Lord to push forward the kingdom in the kingdom of darkness. He's going to use a whole bunch of characteristics that when we begin to examine them are really a perfect example of exactly what 1 Peter chapter 3 says there in verses 15 and 16. And it says there, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter then goes on to say, and really do so is the intention there, with meekness and fear, have a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, in other words, when people have a problem with you, those who revile your good conduct may be ashamed. You want God to be your defense. And so if you want God to be your defense in that sense, as a believer, when you're doing the work of the Lord, there are some principles found here in Acts 22 that are absolutely essential for us as we live out gospel lives. Paul's going to give this incredibly courteous, uh, marvelous salutation to people who are after him to kill him. Somebody who wants to destroy you. I don't know how you respond to people who have threatened to take your life. But my guess is you might find patience a little bit in short supply. You you might find that being courteous to them may well be the last thing on your to-do list. And yet the Apostle Paul, in a dire situation to where his life actually is going to be at stake uses incredible principles of communication for both the gospel and really the truth of our lives as we go to explain them. Because here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to say, well, the Lord told me, or the Lord spoke to me, or the Lord did this in my life. You're going to say those things as you live out your life here on this earth, hopefully anyway. It should be something that happens to us fairly frequently because we're to be about our Father's business, amen? Just as Jesus was, so are we to be. And so when you do that, you're going to say things that are going to come to you from the Lord and people in the world are not going to understand that. They're going to look at you like you've got a third eye in the middle of your forehead. They're going to look at you like you're completely out of your mind. They're going to falsely accuse you. They're going to say all manner, just as Jesus said, of things falsely against you. 
They're going to make up their own rules, their own regulations. They're, they're going to say things about you which you are going to need to defend because you don't want the Lord to receive anything other than glory. You don't want God's people defamed. You don't want the Lord defamed. And you surely don't want the enemy to win. But you have to go about that in the right way. And so verse 1 here in Acts 22 uh, as we begin this journey through the defense of Paul, uh, as, as he shows us exactly how to defend ourselves in the public square. And it says there, brethren and fathers, hear my defense now before you. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this incredible man, Lord, that we'll one day meet when we get to heaven. God can't wait to sit down and talk to him. What it must have been like to have lived his life fully in abandon, not counting his own life dear, were his own words. Lord, considering himself lost for the high calling of Christ Jesus. And so we pray that you'd speak to us and bless us and encourage us, strengthen us, give us, uh, give us some practical examples of things that we can do in our lives as we seek to live them for you. And so we bless you. Pray your word would now strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen. So hear my defense before you now. And when they all heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Now remember who the Apostle Paul is. He is a Jewish man, but he's been raised in the region that the Romans called Palestine. And during that time in Palestine, the common language of the people either would have been Aramaic or Greek. And so the Romans and the Jews, the Romans would have been speaking Latin, and the Jews who were walking in the ways of the Jewish people would have spoke Hebrew. And so their assumption is that this guy Paul couldn't possibly know Hebrew he should have responded to them in Aramaic or Greek because they did not believe that he was actually a man who understood the law, a man who valued the true and the living God. They were accusing him of being a blasphemer. And so they figured there's no way that he's going to speak to them in their own language. But when he begins to speak in Hebrew, you see, when you begin to speak other people's language, they have a tendency to listen. The first point here is if you want to speak to somebody, you need to have some place to start. And a good place to start is somewhere where people might be prone to listen to you. I witness very often, unfortunately too frequently and too often, Christians who are Bible bashers, They're, they get out the stick of the Word of God, and when they talk to people who don't know the Lord, they beat them over the head with Scripture. Things that those people cannot understand and do not know as truth. And so rather than opening the door, the door becomes closed. And so here it happens to be literally the Hebrew language. But for us, we can learn a lesson here, and that's to try and speak to people in their own language. You know, sometimes people just need to know that you care. Know that you have something that you would like to communicate to them, and you're not trying to harm them in doing so. 
I think one of the things that we are forced to deal with in our society right now is this seemingly endless supply of hate-filled rhetoric. People just bagging on each other, bashing each other, talking each other down, shouting each other down. The Apostle Paul is not doing that, and his life is in jeopardy. And so he begins to speak to them, and they became silent. And he said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. He says, look, I was raised in the city of David. I was raised in Jerusalem. I was taught under perhaps, at least at that time, would have been the greatest Jewish rabbi that existed. He says, I I know you guys. I am one of you in that sense. You know, when you begin to identify with people and say, look, I'm with you. I, I know your story. You open doors of communication so that people will stop and listen. I was brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's laws, and was zealous towards God as you all are today. He says, look, I get it. I've walked where you've walked. I've lived where you live. And so he gives us incredible opening salutation. He's going to give us really five defenses in the remainder of the book of Acts where he's just defending the gospel. But this one is so kind. And so he says, look, I am Jewish. I'm Hebrew. I understand why you might think the way you think. Can I tell you that when you tell people you understand why they may feel the way they do, you bring some walls down. When you don't just immediately say, look, you guys are really wrong. You guys don't have a clue. You know when you begin to open a conversation with, you guys are a bunch of idiots? What in the world's wrong with you? How come you don't know this? You lousy, rotten, filthy heathens. You understand what I'm saying? Paul's saying, look, I get why you feel the way you do. I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He's going to go on and give further defense of this very same point. But he's opening the door. Brothers and sisters, you know, sometimes the best way to get to somebody's heart with the gospel is to find out what they like to eat. Find out what sport they like to play. Find out what school they go to. Find out what neighborhood they live in. Find out what their likes are, their dislikes. Open the door of communication so there can be a discourse instead of a lecture. We're teaching the Word of God. This is church, and so we're gathered together for a purpose here. But when you sit one-on-one with someone, let them be them. Let them understand who you are. Apostle Paul does that here in a very deliberate fashion. He he answers the, the charges that are brought up against him. And he's going to begin by highlighting all kinds of personal experience and fact And we're going to see that he is finding some common ground. You've got to find common ground with people. The Christian that is overtly combative, 
One of the problems I have sometimes is we do conferences and things like that. Inevitably, we end up getting protested by one group or another group. And it's almost always, and let me say this as kindly as I can, it's almost always the legalists. It's the people who believe that only what they have to say matters. And they say it in such a way that there's no communication back and forth. Not open to talking about it. And so ultimately the discourse is shut down. And you don't even get a chance to talk to that person. Open the door of communication. Find some common ground in that sense. The Apostle Paul, as he wrote to the church at Corinth, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, gave us some keys there in verses 19 to 23. And before we move on in, in the rest of our passage for tonight, it says there in verse 19, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, For though I am a free man from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more. In other words, he's saying, look, I'm free in Christ. I can do whatever I want. I don't have to be here. God's given me a free will. I have choice. And to the Jews, I became a Jew. And if you don't know this passage, if this is the first time you've heard it, I highly encourage you to underline it. Highlight it. Because you know what? We can all do a little better at relationship. Opening doors. Helping people understand. You know, when somebody's been heavily into drugs, they just say, you know, you're just a crackhead. You're, you're probably not going to open a door. You may close a few, but you're, you're not going to open a door. When somebody's been in a horrific relationship and they've been immoral, oh, you, I can't believe you would do something like that. They already know that part of the story. They're looking for somebody to open the door. And so to the Jews, I became a Jew that I might win the Jews. To those who were under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who were under the law. Now he's not saying that he gave up the grace of God. He's not saying he changed the gospel message. He isn't saying that he dumbed it down so the content was not true any longer. He's simply saying in the context, he says, look, if I want to win somebody who's Jewish, I need to be respectful of Jewish people. It's one of the reasons when we, as I shared with you, we travel to Israel, we don't wear overtly Christian things because it's highly offensive to the Jewish people. That and 80% of the people who you can't tell are Jewish, you know, they're not wearing ringlets and they don't have a prayer shawl on. They're probably Christians. So most Jewish people are used to seeing Christians. They know that they're in Christ. We want to open the door. So we talk to IDF soldiers. We just speak to them. We start conversation. We don't start sharing every single messianic passage we can think of in the, in the Bible. We don't start beating on people. We try and find some common ground. And so he goes on to finish this passage here in 1 Corinthians 9. To the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men 
that I might by all means save some. Said, whatever I've got at my disposal. So long as it doesn't compromise the gospel message, it does not compromise your character, it, it doesn't lead someone to believe the wrong thing, not talking about throwing the gospel out or changing it. He's just simply saying, if I need to be a little bit more Jewish in my mindset to reach a Jewish person, then we talk about the feast. We, you know, you ask somebody. You know, as, I, as I was sitting with the Israeli council general, as he was sitting next to me, we were talking about, maybe some of you saw us kind of conversing back and forth, we were actually talking. He was commenting about, wow, a lot of your music is from the Psalms. Because he knows the Psalms. It's a place to talk. It's a way to get a conversation started. We need to be better at doing that. In our dealings with men, William Barclay said in his commentary on this passage, however unkind and hurting we are, because there's times when the gospel stings. You can't change it. Jesus is the only way and the only truth and the only life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. You, you can't change that. That's going to sting. That's going to hurt. There are some people who are going to just, that's an offense. The gospel is an offense. To we who are being saved, it's the gospel of God and salvation. But to them, it's an offense. You can't do anything about that. But he went on to say we need to exercise the same patience that God exercises with us. With me, with Jeff. God's been patient to us. It's a simple truth. He went on to say that such patience is not a sign of weakness, but a sign of strength. It's not defeatism, but it is, in fact, the only way to victory. Just being patient with people, hearing them out. And though Paul was born in Tarsus, he had been reared in the holy city of David, the city of Zion, the lower portion of the the city as we see it today, below the Temple Mount. And, and so he brings up the name of Gamaliel. There wasn't a person there that would have a bad thing to say about Gamaliel. So he, he gets a little inroad there. He says, look, I, I sat under him. I know this man. He wasn't encouraging, because remember, he'd been accused of encouraging people to disobey the law. You know, don't do that, don't do this. And so he recognizes the sincere uh, motives that are behind their desire to kill him. You know why he could say that? Because he had the same desire. When Paul, remember chapter 9, when Jesus and Paul had the encounter on the road to Damascus, what was Paul on his way to do? Kill Christians. Bind them in chains if necessary. And so he's saying, look, I get it. I was doing the same thing you're doing. When you say to somebody, I get it. I used to do drugs too. I get it. I was a drunkard before I met Jesus. I get it. I was in a relationship with somebody I wasn't. I get it. I understand why you feel that way. When you acknowledge people's feelings, you open the door to talk to them further. Don't shut them down. 
So there's several things here, and we'll go through them now fairly quickly. Look, you need to make sure that you affirm people who are lost. Give them some value. Make sure that they they know that you care, not that you just know that they're wrong. Verse 4, I persecuted this way, it says, and, and the way was the name for the people. So people of the way were Christians. I persecuted this way to death. Binding, delivering to prisons, both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness. And all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren. And I went to Damascus to bring them in chains, even those who were there in Jerusalem to be punished. Paul says, look, I get it. I I understand why you're doing what you're doing. I know why you want to kill me. I was in your shoes. I remember what that felt like. He is affirming them. He's not just simply saying, man, you guys are whack. I get it. Identify with people. Let them know you care. Let them know that you yourself used to struggle with that very thing. Can I give you a word that we don't see much anymore in our world? Transparency. Be transparent. Let people see you so that you can see them. Be real around them. He's speaking to the zeal. And you would think it, you know, it's not a really great thing to tell people who are trying to kill you that you agree with them. But uh, that's what he's doing. He said, look, I, I understand. If people don't feel attacked very often, you can say things to them that you otherwise will not be able to say. And so affirm them. Notice verse 6, and there's a number of things here, and we're beginning to see how valuable your own credentials are and your own testimony uh, is. And now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus. He's recounting now his own testimony, isn't he? This is what happened to him on the road that we saw back in chapter 9. And it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, so he's being very personal. He's recounting the story as best as he possibly can tell it. He knows it, and I'm sure that the time is correct. That suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice sing me. Now, if this wasn't true, no Pharisee, no rabbi is going to say, look, I fell on my face before this God that I don't believe in. I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so I answered, who are you Lord? He's admitting that this encounter that he had, he has proclaimed, he's given the title Lord to this one who's speaking to him as he falls on the ground. That's not a good thing to do when you're around people who are trying to kill you for being a blasphemer. Because you're basically admitting you're a blasphemer. And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. Look, he's telling them his true story. He's giving him his own credentials. He's saying, look, this is what happened in my life. He, in essence, is also at the same time speaking forth his own testimony. There's nothing short of miraculous. Now, you might say, well, look, I I haven't had a Damascus Road experience. 
You know, when I gave my life to Christ, maybe it happened here in church and it was somewhat less spectacular. Amen? You know, not everybody has to have this amazing testimony of a beam of light from heaven shining on you and you being knocked flat on your face, needing to be led into some town by somebody you don't even know. Chances are that probably didn't happen to a whole lot of people in the room tonight. But there are things that you can use that God has done. Maybe God helped you with your grades in school. Maybe God helped you get a job. Maybe God fixed your marriage. Maybe God delivered you from some habit. Maybe God took away some sin from you. Maybe when you met God, your Damascus Road experience was something that is much simpler than this. There's a lot of things that you can use that are your credentials. It's pretty crazy. I mean, you can talk to people about mortgage banking and get to Jesus eventually. You can talk about your job and get to Jesus eventually. You can talk about membership to 24-hour fitness and get to Jesus eventually. I can always talk about trout fishing and get to Jesus eventually. Use you. Paul is using his own experience. And Paul is using what he has at his disposal. His own testimony. His own credentials. I'm sure he was fairly reluctant to say, look, well, you know, I actually saw this light and I heard this voice and I called that voice Lord. You see, the Jewish people would have known if that had been Yahweh, Lord of hosts, and somehow God had become visible, that would have put Paul on par with Moses. That wouldn't have been a really good thing to say to a group of rabbis. That would have further gotten you in trouble. So he just simply begins to talk about his own testimony. He's gaining, a, he's gaining an audience. He's establishing some common ground. He's beginning to share how he came to faith in Christ. Every person in here has a testimony. If you're here tonight and you are a believer, which I believe is a vast majority of us, then you have a personal testimony. Now, maybe you think yours is boring. But to someone who doesn't know the Lord, your story may be the very story they need to hear. So don't neglect to tell your story. To use what God's done in your own life. You have a responsibility before God to use what God has given you. Not worry about what he hasn't given you. And oh, by the way, please don't make up a testimony. (laughs) Just use what you got. Whatever it is. You know, if you actually didn't murder 45 people and you didn't spend 100 years in prison, don't tell people that. No, it doesn't do any good. Just use what you do have. How maybe you can talk to your parents for the first time in 10 years. Maybe how a relationship between you and your sibling, your brother, your sister, has been restored. Maybe how you used to be a person who hated most everybody. But now you actually kind of sort of like talking to people. That's your testimony. Just use what you have. Verse 10, and so I said, and he's still speaking of this Damascus Road experience, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go to Damascus. 
and there you'll be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came to Damascus. He's blinded, he's shocked, he's confused. He he realizes, look, I'm on the road and somehow uh, I meet the Lord himself and he calls the Lord out by name. What do you want me to do, God? There's a question here for you, for me. Don't forget to ask the question. Lord, what do you want to do with this? Not why are you letting this happen to me, Lord? What do you want to do with this, God? What is it that you would like me to do? Because that always is the question we need to have answered. So what? I know you have something for me. I know everything in your economy happens for a reason. Under the dispensation of grace, there is not an accident in your life. Did you know that? There's no such thing as far as a believer is concerned. People who don't know the Lord basically think everything is happenstance, circumstance, and accident. But for you, there's a sovereign God in heaven who governs all things, and he either actively causes things to come to pass, or he has, at least in a sense, allowed permission for them to happen. So he knows about everything. So there's no accidents. So the question becomes... God, what do you want to do with what you've allowed? What is it you're trying to say to me? And to that, Paul's answer is complete submission to the will of God. Lord, what would you have me do? In other words, he's asking the question, Lord, what is your will in this? What am I supposed to do with this? The secret to a very fertile life lived for the Lord is to constantly ask God, what do you want me to do? Not sure, Lord. What do you want me to do? And then when he speaks, do it. Verse 12, and then a certain Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, and again, he's still recounting his story, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me, And he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that same hour, I looked up at him. What I see here is a respect and an honor for the testimony of someone else. And I just had a great testimony. And even the Apostle Paul sees it, and so much so that he's willing to admit that to other people. Can I tell you it's okay to praise other people, just don't praise yourself. When when someone else has been kind, when someone else has been generous, don't have to give all the details and steal their glory or their thunder before the Lord. But it's okay to remind people God was so good that that person was used in your life. You give God the glory for the person, for the things that were done. Paul does that. He says, look, I didn't deserve it. Somebody should have left me probably. I think what he's thinking, if we could do that for a moment. Paul's probably thinking, man, they should have left me for dead. For all the things I was doing, I'm surprised anybody helped me. But this man, Ananias, who had a stellar reputation in the Jewish community of Damascus, out of utter devotion for the law and for the Lord, Paul gives him credit where credit is due. And Paul looks up. And it's interesting, that that phrase there translated into English, Paul looked up at him. 
It actually really means to look again. In other words, he could see before, but he couldn't see correctly. And so now he says, look up, look again. Make sure that you're taking time to look up. And then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will. God wants you to know his will. Scripture is very clear on this issue. And yet people often kind of talk about God's will like it's unknowable. God's will is knowable. The question is, will we go to the extremes necessary to find out what it is? Because a lot of people, if they don't get like an envelope sealed with a stamp on it in wax that says, this is from God. It's like, well, I don't know. I'm not sure. God is constantly speaking to us. And he wants you to not only know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and what you have heard. And so Ananias speaks to to Paul and Paul is now recounting that. And basically he's recounting a supernatural event. But he's also at the same time saying, look, God is speaking to me. I heard God's voice. It was audible. Sometimes God uses other people to speak to you. All the time when you read his word, he's speaking to you. Sometimes he speaks to you in prayer. Sometimes he speaks to you in dreams. Sometimes he speaks to you in visions. But God is constantly speaking to us. The question is, are we actually listening for God's voice? A lot of times our problem is we're not actually listening for God's voice. We're listening for confirmation of something we think. I'm just asking God to give me a big amen about what I've already got planned. And God's not telling me amen. He's saying, no, I'm speaking to you and I'm telling you something different. And Jeff, you're not listening. And so he says, listen, wait on the Lord, know his will, know his word, know his way. You see, you have to make sure that you're hearing from the Lord. There's a sixth thing that comes into view next. Notice verse 16. And, and now, why are you waiting? Close the deal, family of God. When, when you've taken time to get to know somebody, now the Apostle Paul has said all these things. He's opened the door. He's got communication going on. And, and he's saying, look, he, he, hears the, he hears the voice. Look, you need to be saved. You need to arise, be baptized. Wash away your sins by calling upon the name of the Lord. Figure out some way to slip the full gospel message in there. It doesn't take that long. Give people the opportunity to receive Christ. It's fairly simple. We, we try and do that virtually every service. Because you never know who may have slipped in the door. They didn't intend to come. Somebody talked them into going to church. You may have somebody standing next to you whom you're talking to, the, the person they came with, and that person invited this other person, and the whole reason you're talking to person A is not person A, it's person B, who just happens to be listening in. So ask them the question. Would you like to know Jesus? All they can do is say no, right? I mean, what can people do to you? Would you like to know Jesus? 
There's only a couple answers to that question. They may say just outright no. They may say, well, not right now. They may say, I'm not sure. They may actually say yes. And you just got a hand in something eternal that will bear fruit forever in heaven. Close the deal. It's a question that comes up here because the Apostle Paul and many others, there there was a, a constant reoccurring theme during the New Testament era. Very often, people were taken immediately and baptized. And if we had a baptismal set up here constantly, we would probably do the same thing here at the church. We had the opportunity to do that. It's a fairly major deal because we have to set up a pool and all those kind of things. But we do baptisms on a regular basis because one of the things that Jesus did, he, he only passed on a couple of ordinances to the church. One of them was communion. The other was baptism. Jesus himself was baptized, not for the remission of sin, but as he was baptized in the Jordan River, he was identifying with the baptism of John, and John was the baptism of repentance. He says, look, you have to repent. That's why when he came out of the water, remember the guys who were watching, and saying, no, 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 no. You first go repent of your sins, and then you come back, because right now you're kind of a brood of vipers. You, you see, are there unbaptized believers? Yes, there certainly are. You absolutely know one. The thief on the cross that got saved didn't get baptized, Amen. He died right there on the cross, and yet he was going to see Jesus in paradise. So baptism in that sense is not essential for salvation, but it is absolutely something that we as the body of Christ should do because we're identifying with our Savior. We're saying, yes, this is what we believe. We believe that Christ died, and we have been raised in new life, and he is my Savior. I'm telling the whole world I love Jesus. We want to do that. We want to confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so as Jesus himself submitted to John, John's baptism, it's just a picture for us. And, and yes, baptism is something we absolutely should do. And so if you haven't been baptized yet, get signed up for our next baptism. And we have a baptism, come down and be baptized and witness your salvation before the world so people will say, ah, You love Jesus. And now it happened, verse 17 says, that when I returned to Jerusalem, that I was praying in the temple, and I was in a trance. And I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. And so Paul's now in a speaking about this trance, and he's continuing, he's answering the mob's accusations. He's saying, look, I'm not anti-temple. I was in the temple praying. I'm not anti-everything Jewish. I was in the temple praying. He said he was in a trance. It's actually the Greek word that we would translate ecstasy. It actually sounds like that in Greek. Estase. He, he, He was in this place where he's seeing a vision from the Lord. And the Lord's reminding him, look, your life's in danger. Get out of here. Now, if he'd have been worried about his life, he wouldn't be standing here giving this testimony. And so Paul's being real with them. And so I said in verse 19, Lord, (laughs) they know that in every synagogue I am imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. 
And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I was also standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Do you remember what Stephen said? Lord, do not hold this against them. One of the men that heard that before he went on the road to Damascus was the Apostle Paul. So Stephen's last breaths of life spoke the truth of God's love into the Apostle Paul. What an amazing picture of how God's grace works in in places that you wouldn't think it's working. Pretty hard to imagine how God could receive anything that would be good out of a stoning that leads to the death of Stephen. And yet it may well have been the testimony of Stephen that changed the Apostle Paul, really began that journey as he's... Can you imagine what happened when he saw that light, having looked, this man Stephen said, forgive them, don't hold this against them. By the way, exactly the same words that Jesus cried out from the cross, amen? Very same words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen echoed those words. Paul heard those words. He went from a notorious persecutor of Christians to the most ardent evangelist that the world knew. You see, sometimes God works in mysterious ways. We need to continue to look for God's guidance in every area, in every aspect of our life. A lot of people just look for God's guidance maybe here in church. Or they look for God's guidance in spiritual things. There's a little secret to to Christian life and living. And that's look for God's guidance all the time in absolutely everything. I don't really even, you know, it's like, what sandwich? Ask God. I don't know. Spicy Italian? BMT? You know, barbecue chicken? I don't know. Ask God. And we kind of joke about it, but in in a very serious sense... The more you ask God, the more you're likely to hear his voice and the more you're likely to know his voice when he speaks. But if you only talk to him like every other month, you're not going to know his voice. If you only ask him when you're already in dire straits, you aren't going to know whether it's him or the enemy that's speaking to you because you're going to be in a great state of angst. So ask him all the time. I have the weird, I drive and I'm like, well, Lord, you know, it's like, so if you ever see me doing that, I'm not actually hallucinating. I'm actually talking to the Lord. It's like, well, I don't really know. You know, so I turn left, turn right. Which way should I go? Yeah, I can tell you. I, uh, it's like, well, I think that freeway's blocked. I, I have had God say, well, you need to get off the freeway. Get off the freeway. I look up there and there it is stopped. It's simple little things. And sometimes he leaves me on the stop freeway to increase my patience. We've got to be looking for God's guidance. And he'll use circumstances. He'll use things that we think are coincidence. He will surely use his written word. He uses the Holy Spirit. He uses the counsel of others. He'll use Bible study. He'll use sermons. He'll use, 
memories. He'll use the sky. He'll use nature. He'll use art. He'll use music. If you just ask him, he'll use pretty much everything that is in this world at his disposal. So the right question is not, is God speaking to me? But am I listening all the time? Have I learned to so intimately hear the voice of God that if he speaks in a storm, I can hear it. If he speaks in a quiet voice, I can hear it. Verse 21, and then he said to me, and he's still recounting this, this depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. You see, Paul appeals to the Lord, but God says, look, I, I'm sending you someplace you don't want to go. It's important. When God speaks, do what he says. And there were three confirmations for Paul's commission to the Gentiles. You had the words of Ananias back in chapter 9, verse 15. He had Paul's record here, his own verbal record. He said, look, God sent me to the Gentiles. And you have the words of the Lord himself with regard to Paul's conversion. We're going to see that when we get to chapter 26. But given his own history, Paul must have realized, and it's the reason for his implicitly stating these things, that this call would send the crowd that he's talking to into a frenzy. He had to know that. And yet he wasn't afraid. Verse 22, and they listened to him until his, listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. For he is not fit to live. So now they're really upset. And then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, I mean, they're, they're, this is like, they've lost it. It's like the crowd's gone wild. They brought out all their anger. And, and by the way, can I tell you something? This was not because all Jewish people hated all Gentiles. Didn't have anything to do with that. But they didn't like the fact that he was preaching Messiah, that Jesus Christ was Lord, that he had actually spoken to him and the Lord had spoken back. That was why they were upset. You're going to find out you can say almost anything to anybody, anytime, anywhere, until you bring out the Jesus word. And then they're like, you are insane. And people still rant and rave and tear their clothes. You can say all kinds of other things pretty much anywhere you want to go. But you start talking about Jesus like you actually know him. Which you do, and people are getting crazy in your face. But we just need to keep being authentic, family. Got to be real. Paul demonstrates that in incredible candor here. These unbelieving people that are standing before him, they, they have a history in understanding the, the Hebrew scriptures. But sometimes you just got to give them a simple sentence or two. Just speak some things into their life. Give God a, a good shout out, if you will. You can say, look, this is how I got transformed. This is the thing that God did in my life. This is the Bible promise. Just open up a tool. Tell them about it. Use whatever means are at your disposal. And sometimes people are going to respond in a negative way. It just goes with the territory. You can't let it dissuade you. And finally, in all this, as this chapter closes up, we're going to make communion available here in just a, in a minute or two. You see, he, he finally says the one thing that he could have said at the beginning. And I want you to understand something. You're going to see it here in Roman law. 
The Apostle Paul could have spared himself all this drama by saying what he says last first. But because he wants to get the truth out, if he had simply said, hey, I'm a Roman, everybody would have went away. He wouldn't have gotten a chance to speak to anybody that was Jewish, especially not some rabbis, not some Pharisees, not members of the Sanhedrin, which come in the next chapter. And so verse 24, and the commander ordered him to be brought to the barracks. They're at the Antonia Fortress. He's in the barracks of the fortress, the north side of the Temple Mount, and said that he should be examined under scourging. Now, so as you understand, the word scourging here is the same word that they used in the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. Scourging was the flagellum. It was a short-handled stick on it, leather thongs, tied into those leather thongs, pieces of sharpened metal, glass, lead beads, and it was designed to kill people. It, it was not like, well, we're going to give you a couple of swats. This is, well, we're going to tear your back off of your body. We're, we're going to destroy you. We're going to kill you. And so they wanted to examine him under scourging. And the hope was that with every one of the lashes, every time that person was hit, that they would eventually confess what was going on, and then the scourging would stop. So that he might know why they shouted out so against him. And they bound him with thongs, and and Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who's a Roman and uncondemned? So now he pulls out, oh, and by the way, I am a Roman who speaks Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, and I have become all things to all men that I might win some. So here he's pulling out the next thing that the Lord can use in his life. You see, the Roman law, several levels of it, the the Lex Julia, the, the law that allowed for Roman citizens to have special treatment under the law. If you were a Roman citizen, you were treated better than everyone else in the entire world. Part of that judicial system under Roman law was that you could appeal to Rome. And the moment you did, you had a right to be heard by the Roman governor at least. If not conveyed all the way to Rome itself and heard actually in Rome. It was one of the actual good things, if you will, about the Roman, at least the Roman society. And so basically he says, look, is it legal for you to whip a Roman citizen who hasn't been tried yet? Well, the answer to that is no. And in fact, if that ever happened, that Roman centurion could have had the same thing done to him that was done to whoever was falsely accused. And so Paul's now saying, look, I'm going to use a little bit of common sense here. I've been going around and around and around with everybody, so now I'm going to tell them, look, I'm a Roman citizen. There eventually comes a point in time when you've got to use what's left. Don't forget to do that. Don't forget to use some common sense. You know, Paul would have gained nothing by taking this beating. Because at this point in time, we find no evidence that anyone was believing his story. So for him to die at the hands of the Romans would not have convinced the Jews of anything. In fact, it would have only sealed the hardness of their heart. They would have said, look. This must be the justice of God. This blasphemer's dead. So he actually uses that in the right way. It wasn't just to get out of the beating. It was that he knew he was more useful to God alive than he would be dead. 
And so he begins to say, look, here's the truth about this. I would just ask you, are you making the full use of your God-given opportunities? Use what you have at your disposal. Verse 26, and when the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care of what you do, for this man is a Roman. The commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? Paul replies, Yes. The commander answered, With a large sum I obtained this citizenship. You see, you could actually buy Roman citizenship. But you could also be born a Roman citizen. And so, being born in Tarsus, a Roman province... Paul was actually a Roman citizen. It's highly likely that Paul's father may have been Roman. Somehow he achieved that status, whether he purchased it or whether he was actually a Roman citizen. We don't know for sure. But you could also bribe people. Paul didn't bribe anybody. He just said, look, this is the truth. I can prove my heritage. I can prove my lineage. And the moment he said that, he was due all those things that the law would allow. Verse 29, immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. He said, we're not touching this. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman because he had bound him. You couldn't fetter. Part of the the Lex Portia, part of the Lex Valeria, was that you couldn't actually even bind a Roman citizen. They were so free that to tie them up was against the law. So they'd already actually broken the law. Paul says, look, I'll use what I have at my disposal. And then the next day, verse 30, final verse here, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds, commanded the chief priest and all their council to appear, and brought Paul down and set him before them. So now the ones that were going to beat him and kill him are the ones that are actually protecting him from the mob. God has a way of turning things around if we allow God to use everything in our lives. Paul was found innocent. He could be released. And so the picture here is that for us, when everything else fails, just trust God. Worship team's going to come back out. Several locations in the sanctuary, there are the elements of communion. We're going to return to a time of worship. Above all else, Just simply trust God. Do the Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 thing. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding in all of your ways. Acknowledge Him, and He will guide and direct your paths. Amen? That's a promise to us. Let Him use whatever is going on in your life. Let Him use your testimony. Let let Him use everything about you. Because whoever you are and whatever you have, whatever is going on in your life is valuable to God. And so as we begin to worship, perhaps you weren't here this morning, you didn't get a chance to partake of communion. There are communion elements. Remember, this is the Lord's table. And we would simply ask that you prepare your heart before you go. Remind yourself that these elements represent the broken body, the shed blood of Jesus are not to be taken lightly. They are only for those who recognize the significance of it, which is we're supposed to do this in remembrance of him, in the remembrance of Jesus. So if you haven't met Jesus yet, there's, there's, a, simple, there's a simple understanding that we need to have 
And that's, you need to be a child of God. So you can invite Jesus into your life. Ask him to, to be your Lord, to be your Savior, to forgive your sin and cleanse you. As we worship, we're going to tent, turn the lights down. We're going to have some of the pastors come forward for prayer as well. If you need to be prayed for, prayed with, please come and avail yourself of that. But let God use you. Open up some doors of conversation and allow God to speak into your life. Amen.